0: Chapter Seventeen of The Secret City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Secret City by Hugh Walpole. Chapter Seventeen. They didn't come to see me again together. Vera came twice kind and good as always, but with no more confidences, and Nina, once with flowers and fruit, and a wild, chattering tongue about the cinemas and Smirnoff, who is delighting the world at the Narodny Dom, and the wonderful performance of Lermontov's Masquerade that was shortly to take place at the Alexander Theatre. Are you and Vera friends again? I asked her. Oh, yes, why not? and she went on, snapping a chocolate almond between her teeth. The one at the Piccadilly is the best. It's an Italian one, and there's a giant in it who throws people all over the place, out of windows and everywhere. Oh, how lovely! I wish I could go every night. You ought to be helping with the war, I said severely. Oh, I hate the war, she answered. We're all terribly tired of it. Tanya's given up going to the English hospital now, and is just meaning to be as gay as she can be. And Zenaida Fyodorovna had just come back from her autriad on the Galician front, and she says it's shocking there now, no food or dancing or anything. Why doesn't everyone make peace? Do you want the Germans to rule Russia? I asked. Why not? she said, laughing. We can't do it ourselves. We don't care who does it. The English can do it if they like, only they're too lazy to bother. The Germans aren't lazy, and if they were here we'd have lots of theatres and cinematographs. Don't you love your country? I asked. This isn't our country, she answered. It just belongs to the Empress and proto Supposing it became your country, and the Emperor went, Oh, then it would belong to a million different people, and in the end no one would have anything. Can't you see how they'd fight? She burst out laughing. Boris and Nicholas and Uncle Alexei and all the others. Then she was suddenly serious. I know, Dirtles, you consider that I'm so young and frivolous that I don't think of anything serious. But I can't see things like anyone else. "'Can't you see that we're all so disappointed with ourselves that nothing matters? "'We thought the war was going to be so fine, "'but now it's just like the Japanese one, all robbery and lies, "'and we can't do anything to stop it.' "'Perhaps some day someone will,' I said. "'Oh, yes,' she answered scornfully, "'men like Boris.' "'After that she refused to be grave for a moment, "'danced about the room, singing, and finally vanished,' a whirlwind of blue silk. A week later I was out in the world again. That curious sense of excitement that had first come to me during the early days of my illness burnt now more fiercely than ever. I cannot say what it was exactly that I thought was going to happen. I have often looked back, as many other people must have done, to those days in February, and wondered whether I foresaw anything of what was to come and what were the things that might have seemed to me significant if I had noticed them. And here I am, deliberately speaking of both public and private affairs. I cannot quite frankly dissever the two. At the front, a year and a half before, I had discovered how intermingled the souls of individuals and the souls of countries were, and how permanent private history seemed to me, and how transient public events but whether that was true or no before it was now most certain that it was the story of certain individuals that i was to record the history that was being made behind them could at best be only a background i seemed to step into a city ablaze with a sinister glory if that appears melodramatic i can only say that the dazzling winter weather of those weeks was melodramatic Never before had I seen the huge buildings tower so high, never before felt the shadows so vast, the squares and streets so limitless in their capacity for swallowing light and color. The sky was a bitter changeless blue, the buildings black, the snow and ice glittering with purple and gold, swept by vast swinging shadows, as though huge doors opened and shut in heaven. Or monstrous birds hovered, their wings spread, motionless in the limitless space. And all this had, as ever, nothing to do with human life. The little courtyards with their wood stacks and their colored houses, carts and the cobbled squares, and the little stumpy trees that bordered the canals, and the little wooden huts beside the bridges with their candles and fruit. These were human and friendly and good, but they had their precarious condition like the rest of us on the first afternoon of my new liberty i found myself in the nevsky prospect bewildered by the crowds and the talk and trams and motors and carts that passed in unending sequence up and down the long street Standing at the corner of the Sadovia and the Nevsky, one was carried straight to the point of the golden spire that guarded the farther end of the great street. All was gold. The surface of the road was like a golden stream. The canal was gold. The thin spire caught into its piercing line all the color of the swiftly fading afternoon. The wheels of the carriages gleamed, the flower-baskets of the women glittered like shining foam. The snow flung its crystal color into the air, like thin fire dim before the sun. The street seemed to have gathered onto its pavements the citizens of every country under the sun—Tartars, Mongols, little Russians, Chinamen, Japanese, French officers, British officers, peasants, and fashionable women— schoolboys, officials, actors and artists, and businessmen and priests, and sailors and beggars and hawkers, and, guarding them all, friendly urbane, filled with a pleasant self-importance that seemed at that hour the simplest and easiest of attitudes, the police. Rum, 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 whirr, whir, whir, whir. whir. Like the regular beat of a shuttle, the hum rose and fell as the sun faded into rosy mist and white vapors stole above the still canals. I turned to go home and felt someone touch my elbow. I swung round, and there, his broad face, ruddy with the cold, was Jerry Lawrence. I was delighted to see him and told him so. "'Well, I'm damn glad,' he said gruffly. "'I thought you might have a grudge against me.' "'A grudge, I said. Why? "'Haven't been to see you, heard you were ill, "'but didn't think you'd want me hanging round.' "'Why this modesty?' I asked. "'No, well, you know what I mean.' "'He shuffled his feet. No good in a sick-room.' "'Mine wasn't exactly a sick-room,' I said, "'but I heard that you did come.' "'Yes, I came twice,' he answered, looking at me shyly. "'Your old woman wouldn't let me see you.' "'Never mind that,' I said. "'Let's have an evening together soon.' "'Yes, as soon as you like.' He looked up and down the street. "'There are some things I'd like to ask your advice about.' "'Certainly,' I said. "'What do you say to coming and dining at my place? "'Ever met Wilderling?' "'Wilderling? "'I could not remember for the moment the name.' "'Yes, the old josser I live with. "'Fine old man. "'Got a point of view of his own.' "'Delighted,' I said.' Tomorrow, eight o'clock, don't dress. He was just going off when he turned again. Awfully glad you're better, he said. He cleared his throat, looked at me in a very friendly way, then smiled. Awfully glad you're better, he repeated, then went off, rolling his broad figure into the evening mist. I turned towards home. End of chapter 17